to be in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. We'll start in verse 10 and go through verse 18. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to him, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Father God, what a beautiful, beautiful moment as Jesus called the name of Mary. The one who had been in darkness, the one who had been with the seven spirits. And now she stands and sees Jesus and sees the light. What a beautiful picture of our own testimony. Those that were in darkness have been called forth into your marvelous light that we might know the name. We might hear the voice of our shepherd as he calls our very own name. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, through Pastor Wayne. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday we uh, celebrated the resurrection of Christ, evidenced by an empty tomb, confirmed by a number of women and men, men who hated Christ like the Sanhedrin, men who loved Christ like Peter and John, and men who didn't even know Christ like the Roman guards. But they all agreed on this, the tomb was empty. You know, the, the first person to actually see the risen Lord, though, is a lady named Mary of Magdala. Uh, she was healed by Christ, according to Luke 8, and then she began financially supporting his ministry. She's from the northern region of Galilee, up around the, the, the lake of uh, the Sea of Galilee, the lake of Chinnereth. And uh, she's come down to Judea, down to Jerusalem for Passover, and she was at the cross. She was at the cross. She heard Christ say to tell us, die, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Father. She saw them run that spear through his side all the way to his heart. She saw them take his body down off of the cross and prepare it with linen strips soaked in spices that were attached with myrrh before placing it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now this all happened the day prior to the Sabbath. On the first day of the week after the Sabbath, Mary returns to the tomb to provide additional spices meant to control the smell of a decaying flesh. As she arrives, it's obvious that the two and a half ton stone covering the entrance of the tomb has been moved. 
And so after going and telling Peter and John what she saw and also what she thought, she thought that somebody has taken his body. So now they come and they see these strips of cloth as they were three days earlier. I mean, this is proof there is no robbery here. But it is very perplexing. I mean, how do you remove strips of cloth adhered with myrrh and have those cloths remain in the form of a cocoon? And yet the body is gone. And so after they leave, verse 10, Mary remains outside the tomb weeping. This is the word for loud wailing. She's not just whimpering. She is sobbing. And when she looks inside the tomb, she saw, and there's that word again for theorize. Just like Peter, when he goes into the tomb, he looks at these clothes and he begins to theorize what he's looking at. This is the same word. John tells us she sees two angels. Ladies, let me ask you a question. Do you think there is any significance to this happening to Mary, who is a woman? Do you think this is just coincidental, or do you think it's purposeful? You know, the Lord created man in his image first. Man ends up rebelling against the Lord, choosing to be his own God. And so the Lord says the redemption of mankind is going to come not through the seed of Adam, through man, but it's going to come through woman so was it on purpose was it on purpose that the first presentation of the gospel by Christ as recorded in his word is to a despised half-breed woman of Samaria who's who's been scorned by her culture because she's been married and and cast out and divorced five separate times Is there a reason why the genealogies of Christ, when you look at the genealogies of Christ's entrance into humanity, both in the legal line of Joseph and the literal line of Mary, why? Why is it that women are included? Like Tamar, who had prostituted herself to Judah. Or Rahab. I mean, she's not just a prostitute, she's a Canaanite. Cain and I, I mean, those are very wicked, idolatrous people who come from the line of Noah's son, Ham. That was the name of Ham's son, Cain. Or Ruth, Ruth, a Moabite. A Moabite? The Moabites are from the incestuous line of Lot. And Bathsheba? Bathsheba, whose husband Uriah is murdered because of her affair with David? I mean, why in a world that's often um, oppressive, oppressive to the female gender because they're seen as, as physically weaker in a world that is misogynistic? Why would Christ publicly show mercy to women? Not just the lady at the well, but what about in John 8? The lady caught the act of adultery. Though the man involved in that act is never brought forth. 
Why is he so compassionate towards Mary and Martha? Why is it in a culture that often oppressed women that the Lord would list in his word Joanna, Susanna, and all these other ladies who are financially supporting Christ's earthly ministry? Why does he choose to reveal himself to Mary of Magdala before he does Peter and John who have left, not yet having seen the Lord? I've asked myself that question. Is it because the witness of women was inferior in that day? That, that if Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were fabricating a story about the resurrection, they would not have included testimonies of women. Does this text reveal the egalitarian nature of our redemption? That there's not only neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male nor female. Galatians 3.28. Why? Because there's no hierarchy in Christianity except that Christ is Lord. That's it. Christ is Lord and we as objects of his mercy and grace are all spiritually and morally equal. We are equal in value. We are equal in heirs to the gift of life. Equal in significance. Now it's certainly true that the Lord did design men and women to function differently. Certainly within marriage, within family, within church. Men are given different responsibilities than women so that we coordinate together as one. Man was created first and therefore given the daunting task of being the spiritual leader. And guys, listen, you're going to have to answer for that one day. Do you know that? Whether you stand as a non-Christian before the great white throne or you stand as a Christian before the Bemis, the judgment seat of Christ, you are going to have to give an answer for how you have functioned as the spiritual leader of your home, how you have treated your wife, how you have provided for your family in ways that they can be spiritually nurtured under your guidance. And wives were created by the Lord to come alongside their husbands with whom they have become one that the Lord might be glorified. But folks, neither race nor gender nor nationality makes any of us superior to another. We are all sinners, redeemed by grace for a divine purpose. John MacArthur said in his commentary, Christianity is really the only legitimate women's liberation movement on the face of this earth. So let's look at our text this morning and see what the Lord has given us. When it is still dark, Mary of Magdala was the first to arrive and at a glance notices the two and a half ton stone once covering the tomb is gone. Thinking someone, probably the Sanhedrin, has removed the body of Christ, she goes and finds Peter and John, tells them that they have taken him. And we don't know where they have laid him. They take off for the tomb as we saw last week. They find the strips of cloth that wrap the body with myrrh. This sticky gum-like substance is like a, an empty cocoon. And they're not sure how to process what it is that they are seeing. 
I mean, if somebody took the body, how did they get it out of the tomb? How did they get the tomb open, first of all? And then how did they get the body out with the guard present? I mean, how did they move that stone sealed with the authority of Caesar? That carries with it a death sentence for grave robbing. The Romans certainly didn't do that. I mean, why would they make up a story about falling asleep? Incriminating themselves. And then claiming the disciples took it. How did they see the disciples took it if they were asleep? Well, I mean, the, the Romans make no sense in, in the story that, that they were, were telling. The Sanhedrin didn't do it. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because they would have gladly presented the physical remains of his body to stop the claims that he is risen if they had the body, but they don't. They're the ones financing this lie. So what happened? Well, I mean, Christ did say, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Is that what happened? They don't know. And they don't know what to do. So they go back where they were staying. They're confused. They're still theorizing as to what it is that has taken place. Mary lacks faith in the resurrection of Christ, but she does not lack commitment to Christ. That's why she's still there and she's still weeping when she looks into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. How does the Old Testament say a fact is confirmed? By the testimony of two or more witnesses, right? Well, John tells us here are two angels who assume a human appearance. To her, they look like they are human. Christianity is a divine message given by the Lord and attested to by angels. We see that with the calling of, of Jacob. Um, there is the presence of angels when Jacob is changed and given the new name Israel. We see this with the giving of the law at Sinai with Moses. The presence of angels confirming what is taking place is of the Lord. We see this in the New Testament from the announcement of Christ's coming to the announcement of his arrival in Bethlehem to the beginning of his earthly ministry to his presentation in the garden to, to when he, he's, he's preparing to drink from the cup of wrath for our redemption to his resurrection, to his ascension. Angels give testimony to the fact this is a divine and supernatural work of the Lord. But it's not just angels. Christ reveals his resurrected presence to not only Mary, but he's going to reveal himself to other women and to men, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to Peter, and to John, and to the ten when, when Thomas is not with them, and then to the ten when Thomas is with them, and to the apostles on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to appear to 500 at one time. He's going to do this over a 40-day period as he teaches them and prepares them and encourages them, and then he comes to them one last time, one last time in Acts 1 just prior to his ascension. And after that, there are no more visual appearances of the resurrected Christ except to the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. 
ironically calling him to take the gospel of the Gentiles. I say ironically because Paul was, uh, was a Pharisee who, who would have certainly despised the Gentiles. And here he is now called to take the good news of Christ's redemption to them. I mean, Christ's primary means for proclaiming the gospel will not be his visual appearances. His primary means is going to be through his preaching of his word and the power of the Spirit, whom he promised that he would send once he goes to the Father. That's how he will be with his people to the end of the age. It's through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so while Mary lacks knowledge as to what is taking place, the presence of these angels confirm. It confirms that, that what's unfolding before her is of the Lord. And so these angels speak to her with respect. Woman, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have laid him. I mean, she's been crying from a broken heart over something that never happened. She's been crying for three days now, and nobody has stolen his body. Nobody. Luke says these angels have the appearance of being young men, so she doesn't know they are angels. And it's very early in the morning. I mean, the sun is just, is just coming up over the Mount of Olives, and she's been crying for three days. Her eyes are bloodshot and blurry. Her heart is broken. She doesn't understand who these two guys are nor why they are there. All she knows is she is there and the tomb is empty and the clothes are still present and the body is gone. That's all she knows. Where is he? Where is he? Do you have any idea why there might be two angels? Anybody? You know why there is one at the head and one at the foot? Where the crucified body that Christ inhabited when he was satisfying the just wrath of God for our sin, where, where that body laid, why, why would be, there be one at the head and one at the foot? Anything come to mind at all as to why the Lord gives us this visual? Do you remember back in the Old Testament, actually right up until this, this Friday event, when Christ said to tell us die, right up to that moment, what has been happening at the temple? Remember, the temple had two sections, and it's divided by that great veil that's 60 feet high. Behind that veil is what? There's a coffin. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark is the tablets, the Ten Commandments given to Moses. And on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Lord would, would, would look down upon his word that man has broken, and he would see it how. What was the top of the, 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 the ark called? The mercy seat. Solid gold representing his holiness. And that's where the, the high priest would, would go behind that veil once, once a year. And he would take the blood of one without blemish and put it on the mercy seat. And the Lord looked at his broken word through that blood shed by one without blemish. And what was present at that mercy seat? There was the presence of cherubim. 
The Lord said in Exodus 25, I will meet you between the cherubim. These angelic creatures who were used of the Lord to magnify his holiness and power. There were these gold cherubim representing his holiness. Their presence was always a reminder of his majesty and his glory. And just as solid gold cherubim were at the head and at the foot of the mercy seat where the blood of one without blemish was applied, Mary now sees at the head and the foot of where Christ's body that shed blood and atonement for our sin was laid are these two angelic creatures. The idea of a resurrection is so difficult for Mary, she simply assumes someone has taken the body. And so having said this, she, she said, I, I don't know where they have laid him. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now the question that I asked when I was reading this is, why did she turn around? I mean, she's speaking to these two guys who are celestial beings, though they appear to be human. But something causes her to turn around. And she sees the form of another man but doesn't know it is Jesus. Why is that? I mean, there has to be a reason, though the text doesn't necessarily tell us. One of the early church fathers speculated that, that Mary, as she was speaking, Christ appears and the angels bow. And so Mary, seeing them bow, realizes something, something they saw behind her. She turns around and she sees him. Who is it? You know, as far as I know, every time Christ appears after his resurrection, the molecular structure of the body suited for eternity that will not age, will not die, will never decay, still possesses the wounds of, of, of Christ from Calvary. It's a body that still walks. As we'll see in the next chapter, it still cooks. It still eats. But it's so different that it's not readily recognizable. You know, when we are raised from the dead, it will still be us. It will still be who we are. But our resurrected bodies will based on what I see in Scripture, will be so glorious that after I'm gone and you see me no more, until that day you arrive in the Lord's presence and we meet again, you're going to say, wow, look at you. Man, you're talking about an improvement. I never dreamed you could look so good. And I'm going to look at you and think the same thing. I don't know exactly what the new bodies will be like, but we know that they're going to be unburdened by the curse of sin that, that shrivels our current bodies. We know they will be recognizable with new capabilities. Maybe we'll be able to go underwater like a whale or, or soar like an eagle. Maybe we'll pass through matter the way that the resurrected body of Christ did. Notice the first recorded words of Christ following his resurrection are what? Woman. Woman? Why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? And she still doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's a gardener. You know, when the body is raised from the dead with that different molecular composition, when it's able to pass through grave clothes, when it's able to pass through locked doors, some believe it's going to be suited even for interplanetary travel. How awesome will that be? But whether it was the molecular structure of the resurrected body or eyes blurred with tears, Mary doesn't expect to see Christ alive. She's there for a corpse. And so she speculates this, this, this must be the gardener that has come. And so she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, tell me where you've laid him. And I will take him away. Mary lacks hope in ever seeing Christ alive again. Why? Because she was there. She saw how badly they beat him. His body was a bloody mess. They did what they could to prepare it for burial prior to the Sabbath. But it was so heartbreaking to see how they brutalized him and then pierced him with that spear. And then when they were, they were jerking his body off of the cross through those nails, as bad as that was, as bad as that was, this is even worse. It's worse that somebody has taken his body. Please, please tell me where he is. I mean, can you imagine this woman? Look how compassionate Christ is to this lady who is so committed, so persistent in her pursuit of him that he reveals to her the greatest news that she has ever received by simply speaking her name. Jesus said to her, Mary, when my mother or father, before there was caller ID, would call me when I left home and went away to college, Milligan College, and they would call, all they had to say was Wayne. And I recognized who it was immediately. Christ said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He knows Mary. That's why she hears him. That's why she's devoted to him. And it's because she belongs to him, one for whom he has died, that she now recognizes him. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, Rabbi. John tells us that means teacher. See, Mary is the Aramaic equivalent to the Hebrew name Miriam. Remember who Miriam is? That's the sister of Moses. That's why you see so many Marys in the New Testament. Well, what would you do if you were with a loved one when they died and you go to their funeral? And you see them in the casket. And you see the morticians close the casket. And you go to the gravesite, And you watch as they lower the casket into the ground. You see all of that. Which I've done many times. And then you just sit after everybody else leaves. 
you just sit and you weep. Some of you have probably done that. I have. In that moment, in that moment, what would you do if that loved one walked up behind you and spoke your name? My dad's little brother was nine to ten years younger than him. So he was more like a big brother to me. We coached basketball together. We did all kinds of stuff together. And um, this was back before there were cell phones, but we would talk on the phone every night, at least through basketball season, about the, the team and about the players and about the opponents, who we were going to play next, what we were doing. I mean, every night, every night we were on the phone. And I would sometimes fall asleep while he was talking. And he'd call back the next night and he'd ask, you know, what was the last thing you remember me saying? And I'd tell him and he'd say, oh my goodness, I talked for 20 minutes after that. And so they just picked back up where we left off. He was killed in a head-on collision. One of the worst days of my life. I had a tough time handling it. I mean, it consumed me for a period of time to the point that one night I dreamed, I dreamed that he was there. I saw him. He was in my dream. And don't ask me how or why, but I knew I was dreaming. Have you ever had that happen? I knew I was dreaming and I didn't want to wake up. Because I knew if I woke up, he'd be gone. I just wanted to get to him and give him a hug. I mean, can't you imagine what this must have been like for Mary? She isn't necessarily trying to, to hug Christ as Matthew 28 says, that when the other women arrived, they took hold of his feet and were worshiping him. Maybe that's what Mary was doing. I mean, she saw the angels bow. And so now she bows and she grasped his feet. And that, that word in verse 17, the word for cling, carries with it the idea that Mary is grabbing his body to see if it's for real. Is this really you? Is it you? And Christ says, stop it. It is me. It is me. And she says, Rabbi. Rabbi. That's an expression of supreme reverence. It's adoration that accompanies the ecstasy of her joy. She can't believe it. I mean, this is the worst day of her life that has become the best day that she could ever imagine. And she came with no hope, no hope of ever seeing Christ alive again. She simply wants to find his corpse. She thinks they have stolen it. And now he speaks to her. He speaks her name with such compassion that she just wants to grasp him and worship him. And he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now, what does do not cling to me have to do with I have not yet ascended to the Father? Well, what, how, how does that go together? The purpose for his incarnate arrival into humanity 
has been accomplished. To tell us, die, it is finished. But the purpose for man's redemption is not complete until Christ ascends to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes, revealing to the apostles all truth. As Christ promised in John 16, then that Holy Spirit indwells you who have that truth, who have been redeemed for God's glory. And it's you with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that takes that truth to a world that is dying in sin. And so he says, stop clinging to me, Mary. You're going to see me again. I'm going to be remaining on earth for another 40 days. I'll be making several appearances with instructions as to what my resurrection means. So go tell those who are my brothers. Who are his brothers? Why does he call them now brothers? Well, he said in Matthew 12, verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, my mother. That's my family. You go tell my brothers that I've risen from the grave and I'm going to the Father to intercede on behalf of all united in the brotherhood of God's grace. My Father is your Father now. My God is your God. You had alienated yourself from the Lord by your sin, but now, through my atoning death, proven by my resurrection, your, my God is your God. My Father is your Father. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Well, when she does this, what do you think their response will be? What do you think? I mean, here comes Mary. I mean, she's just leaping with joy, bubbling over with excitement. How do you think they're going to respond to her? You've seen him, but we haven't. I don't know why, but as I'm reading this, I, I, I thought of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, you know, when, when Scrooge is visited by those beyond the grave, past, present, and future, and he, he saw his fate. He saw his fate unless he changes. And then when he awakens, he goes to the window, and he's ecstatic to realize that it's a new day. It's Christmas Day. It's a new day. A new opportunity. And changed by what had been revealed to him, everybody is shocked. They're just shocked that this grumpy, stingy, hateful old man was now the kindest man in town, was the most generous man in town. And as a changed man, he now treats his employee, Bob Cratchit, differently. He treats Bob's family differently. He treats Tiny Tim differently. Everyone encountering him, everyone. They see the change. Mary takes off to do what Christ said. How do you think she was received? Well, we're not told. But when Christ reveals himself to the ten, Judas is dead and Thomas is gone. They tell Thomas about it. And what's his response? Refuses to believe. Refuses to believe. Ever had that to happen? You're just so excited about who Christ is and what he's doing in your life. 
in the life of your family, in the life of your friends. And when you share that with someone, they don't get it. They just don't get it. How are we to handle that? Well, that's coming up in the following verses. That's another sermon for another day. But for today, what are some lessons that we can take from this? One is that deliverance demands devotion that believes in Christ. You know, many times the Lord works outside our paradigm, which causes us to arrive at wrong conclusions because we just don't see the big picture. And sometimes he is fulfilling his divine will in ways that we just can't imagine. It's just, it's just bigger than us. We don't understand. And in those moments, we can learn from Mary that it's okay. It's okay. Lord, you don't owe us any explanations. We still believe. We still believe and know with all of our heart that you are true to your word. And we are going to be faithful to you and trust you and believe you, even though we don't understand. Secondly, deliverance demands devotion that radically loves him. You know, a radical, uh, that's, that's from the Latin word for root. When, when you see the square root, the, the sign that's over the number is called a radical. A radish is a root. The love of Christ gets to the root of our lives. And it produces radical love. Radical love. Even when our faith is weak. Even when our hopes seem to vanish in the midst of troubling circumstances. Our love of the Lord should never fade. Never. Do you love Christ? Do you? Let me ask you this. Is your involvement here at Wellington more about him than it is about you? You know, we're going to see in the next chapter that Christ will ask Peter three times, do you love me? Why three times? Well, Peter denied that he even knew Christ three times. Why? Because in that moment, in that moment, he loved his life more than he loved Christ. Do you? Is your involvement here more about you than it is your love of Christ? See, he will say to Peter, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. You'll serve me. You will serve me instead of making what you do all about you. Let me ask you, how are you serving Christ? Thirdly, deliverance demands devotion that trust him. You know, Mary is ignorant in her notions and she's erroneous in her understanding of how God is working all things together for her good and his glory. But she trusts him. Do you? Can you trust the Lord when you don't understand why certain things happen as they do? You know, if you have any questions this morning, you need any help, you, if, you, if you say, well, you know, I do love the Lord, but I'm really not serving him like I ought, but I'd like to know how, there'll be somebody back at the connect table that will help answer those questions and help get you connected. Stay with me as we pray. Lord, your word is so rich and encouraging. I mean, our hearts literally overflow with gratitude for all that's been granted to us by your grace, by your truth, by your power. 
We're grateful. We're grateful, Lord, for the testimony of those who saw Christ risen, confirming he has reconciled us with you. And therefore now you are our Father. And we're grateful. We're grateful to be joint heirs for all eternity in Christ. So may we be found faithful in believing, in loving, in trusting you. We believe you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. And we ask this morning that you fulfill your purposes to the glory of your name through our lives and through this church. For it's in Christ we ask it. Amen. Before we